Hi, Stella. Hi, Sasha. Uh, I've I've been I've been told by our producer we should say our names, and I've been actually avoiding saying your name for the last few weeks. I have a secret, <laughs> so oh, I'll no. tell you why. Well, I realised with a shock and a horror that I'm kind of mispronouncing it because <laughs> I say Sasha. Well, I just realised everybody American says Sasha, as if it's a no. So Lisa oh. says hi, Sasha. Everybody says Sasha, and I say Sasha. Mm-hmm. <laughs> are you Sasha? And I just realized I'm mispronouncing her name because actually, because I, I remember it was a few weeks ago, you called, you said your name. And I went, oh, is that how you say it? <laughs> Sasha, not Sasha. That's so, so yeah, I've been avoiding it. <laughs> so this is my little confession. Hey, podcast co-host. <laughs> how are you? Well, <laughs> I I will reassure you that actually you can pronounce my name that way. And as a matter of fact, I'm thinking my father pronounces my name Sasha. Uh-huh. And my Good. mom pronounces it more like Sasha. And then some people say Sasha with like an O-ish sound. Oh, so I think yeah. it's fine. And if we have, well, first of all, I mean, most listeners will now know I am not Russian, but my name is Russian. That's right. So if we have any Russian or Eastern European listeners who can correct us, I believe the pronunciation in that part of the world is Sasha. My Sasha. 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 I think so. Yeah. Sasha. It's so, so interesting because it came from my, uh, you know, I often uh, would be talking, you know, Carrie Mendoza and I call her Carrie and my husband yeah. was calling her Carrie and I was laughing at him. I said, that's like calling somebody Gary, Gary, not Gary. <laughs> It's Carrie, Henry. And I was, I was completely full of myself, Carrie. And then Carrie said, well, it's Carrie. And I was like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, Carrie and Sasha. I can call them Carrie and Sasha. <laughs> anyway. That's I, love how, I love how it sounds coming out of your beautiful accent. It's, so it's obviously, I'm fine with it. <laughs> it's a stronger accent than I certainly thought. Anyway, how's your life been? <laughs> Sasha. <laughs> My life has been well. It's been good. And uh, yeah, I really don't have too much to report. I mean, what I would have reported was a piece of news that came out towards the end of our podcast with Lior about my deep dive into the Memory Hole podcast oh, yeah. and repressed memories and the unbelievable number of parallels with what is going on today. So when we talk to Lior, we end up discussing that. And then that kind of also shifts into our um, Substack listener community kind of exclusive content. So it it was a great conversation. And that's been on my mind a lot. What what about you? You have some updates and stuff going on yeah, in your world. I, I listened to that podcast, too. I really recommend it to people. Really, really interesting. Sad, though. It's, it's a sad, you know, very yeah. good reflection of how especially girls can get caught up in a contagion and they can feel so serious looking for meaning and purpose looking for for often looking for a reason for distress that yeah. it's so easy to get caught up in um so yeah highly recommended looking forward to your videos and um i i, I think there's so much going on it, it makes me dizzy but we are at the moment collecting any submissions for detrans awareness day so if any detransitioners or anybody who's been harmed by medical transition Detrans Awareness Day. It's very interesting. It's only about three years old and it's on the 12th of March. And, um, you know, we've we've each year we've kind of let out different bits of material just to kind of raise awareness for detransitioners and people who've been harmed. by. Where do people go? How do, how do so they, they can if they emailed stories? info at gentspec.org, we'll we, we take it from there. But any sort of submission, we pay us a, a fee for anybody who wants to submit something and it gets published on Detrans Awareness Day. And we really try and help people. They don't have to do it with their name attached. They could just send an essay in or Anonymous. They could do a piece of audio. There's lots of different okay. ways you could submit a piece. Anything to raise awareness for it. Yeah. We already have a couple of uh, kind of, anyway, you know, things planned. So, you know, it's, That's it's just an extra. Yeah, I think it's We'll make sure that... to put that in the notes so that yeah. people can easily find the links. And it's, you know, it's a while away from now, but it's important to know that these events are coming. Anything to raise awareness to what's going down at the moment. Mm -hmm. We can do our little bits with retweets and hashtags and stuff like that. But today's conversation is with Lior Sapir. We we had him on about 18 months ago and he was fascinating. And he was fascinating yet again today. Really, really good. 
Yeah, so he's a researcher in political science, um, and he's you know the the best person really to talk about the way policy and legal changes, stuff that feels very, I guess, like unsexy and behind the scenes. Because, you know, we talk about hmm. the cultural piece, we talk about the media, and that has a really kind of um, glittery facade that is easy to see. But Lior is really good at explaining the way behind the scenes policies or like subtle changes in language of a law or a bill or whatever can have these ripple effects. And it's super interesting. And Today, we talked about a lot of things, including kind of like the the relationship, the, the medical ethics relationship between consumer and doctor and institutions and the way, especially in gender medicine, every person in that kind of relationship keeps kind of dodging responsibility. And Lior points out that ultimately gender affirming care puts the onus on the patient, even if the patient is only like nine or 10 years old. It was a really interesting discussion when we touched on that. Yeah. Yeah. It was really, really good. Yeah. We, um, we talked a little bit about the bans uh, here in the U.S. and kind of Leo shared some of his thoughts about the way medicine is regulated. So it was a broad ranging conversation. We yeah. hope you will enjoy it. And if you want to go back and listen to Leo's first episode, it was episode 88 in September of 2022, ages ago. So uh, shall I read Lior's bio and then we'll jump in? Yeah. Lior Sapir is a fellow at the Manhattan Institute. In his work, Dr. Sapir applies his research and academic experience to policy matters, concentrating on issues of gender identity and transgenderism. His inaugural essay in City Journal in the winter of 2022 explores a series of recent court rulings on transgenderism, demonstrating how bad ideas translate from fringe academic theories into law and policy. Previous pieces for City Journal explored the evolving athletic guidelines and media coverage surrounding trans issues. We hope you enjoy our very interesting conversation with Dr. Lior Sapir. Hi, I'm Stella O'Malley, a psychotherapist in Ireland. And I'm Sasha Ayad, an adolescent therapist in the United States. And this is Gender, A Wider Lens, a podcast dedicated to the shifting concepts around gender in our contemporary culture. Through in-depth interviews, personal stories, and psychological exploration, we seek to open up the discourse around this hot-button issue. Join us as we look at gender from a wider lens. Hi, Stella, and welcome, Lior. Hi, thanks for having me again. Glad to have you back. You know, so recently, as of recording this conversation, uh, New York Times published a piece by Pamela Paul talking about um, youth gender medicine and detransitioners. Uh, I was interviewed for it. Several, several other people we know, of course, were as well. And I wanted to talk a little bit about that because it feels like a really big deal for the New York Times to publish something with this much kind of clarity about gender medicine. And so you had made a tweet thread about it, kind of highlighting things that you thought Pamela Paul did well, and then also a flaw that you had seen in the piece. So I'm wondering if we could start there. Could you kind of like summarize what you sure. uh, were talking about in that tweet thread? Yeah, I mean, I think one thing to say just off the bat is, um, I think it's unfortunate that some of the New York Times best reporting on this issue has come in the opinions in the opinion section. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, that that seems to be a point that, you know, activists who were um, outraged by the piece have latched onto that this is an opinion piece and not investigative journalism. I think anybody involved in this piece, from what I've heard, you know, the detransitioners, anybody in, who was interviewed um, had to hand over uh, mounds of documentation and evidence. Uh, Pamela Paul really went out of her way to make sure that her claims were defensible, probably anticipating that, you know, they would get torn to shreds by activists online. So um, so the piece is actually deeply researched, and I think it belongs, honestly, as an investigative piece <laughs> in regular reporting yeah. for the New York Times. Um, but, you know, having it as an opinion piece, I think, also allows the New York Times to... Um, to broach the topic in a slightly more critical way without really saying that they're broaching the topic. Um, and I so, could, you know, could, yeah. 
could we just say for anybody who hasn't read uh, the New York Times and, you know, people from this side of the, the pond, what it was about, you know, if you mm. could just say what the what what the piece was about, because it, it was a game changer. Right. I mean, the piece was ostensibly about detransitioners um, and it profiled, I think, four detransitioners. Um, but it used their stories as as a way to um, to explore some of the um, deeper questions and the research and the evidence or lack thereof behind these um, these interventions. And so, uh, you know, <clears throat> um, uncharacteristic for an opinion piece, um, Pamela actually uh, does cite some of the research in there. Um, she she goes into some of the uh, what we do and don't know with regard to um, regret, detransition, desistance, things like that. And it's a very measured, moderate piece, um, you know, not perfect. And we can talk about that for, in a minute, but, <clears throat> but much better than um, almost anything we've seen in the New York Times, including, you know, the Times have, has had um, two or three pieces in the last few years that have also generated out, outrage among activists um, that, for example, called attention to the um, uncertainties and potential harms of puberty blockers. Um, but as is usual with these pieces, they kind of they they tend to miss the forest for the trees, mm -hmm. um, and they they underplay the uncertainties and risks, and they you know they kind of genuflect and say things like you know what most medical associations agree without really giving us the context of what that agreement is based on without really doing a deep dive into, you know, what evidence are they citing and whether it's credible. Um, they ba they've barely touched on changes abroad, um, which I think mm -hmm. is, a, is a, a real point against the New York Times is that it's, you know, with, with a few exceptions, it's by and large ignored the fact that the United States has become, um, maybe with the exception of Canada, an outlier in this area of medicine. Um, <clears throat> um, and so, you know, Pieces like the one that we saw from Pamela Paul are are a welcome addition to the reporting. Because of New York she Times. did she did highlight the difference between the way right. the European countries are moving, what direction they're moving, and the right. U.S. And so That's she right. first for the first time in the New York Times acknowledged this, which seems to be such an important element to me. So yeah, keep going. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if it was the the first time per se. I think there was an acknowledgement in a few sentences in a previous article, but um, I mean. If you if you understand what's going on in Europe, mm -hmm. and you care about evidence based medicine, the changes in Europe should be a story in their own right, and maybe even several stories in their own right. I mean, that's a huge, huge development in the area of pediatric medicine, and the fact that the Times has only um, found it appropriate to cover it in a few sentences of the past few years, I think, is is pretty outrageous. But in any case, um, here we are. We have this piece by by Pamela Paul. Um, and as I said in my thread on, on, on X, you know, I think she got many things right and one thing wrong. So let me just kind of go through what I think she got right first. I think, first of all, she did mention or at least um, hinted that, you know, the American medical associations really are out of sync with, um, with a growing number of countries in Europe. Um, and they're not really based on reliable evidence. Um, so that I think it's a, it's important to acknowledge that that um, there isn't consensus among medical professionals and health authorities on this issue, um, and that to the extent that there is, uh, let's call it a kind of a majority opinion, um, it's gradually shifting away from the approach taken by U.S. medical groups. So, so that that's you know that wasn't fully explored, but it was at least hinted at, and that, that I think is is good. Number two, um, <clears throat> I think it's really important to emphasize that the detransitioners who were featured in this piece were deemed good candidates for transition by clinicians who practice the gender affirming model. Um, and that's important because um, gender clinicians who practice that model and activists who defend it are constantly telling us that they have um, highly reliable ways to d distinguish between those who are good candidates and those who are not, those who know that they're trans and those who, who you know, are passing through a phase. Um, and I think that the, the very existence of detransitioners suggests that that's not true, or at least that, you know, that, that they can't uh, reliably distinguish between these two populations. Um, and, you know, Paul noted in, uh, in a follow-up piece to her, um, to her piece from Friday 
that detransition rates or at least discontinuation rates of hormones, according to one study, might be as high as 30%. Um, Now, I should point out that we don't have a good empirical picture of regret and detransition. In fact, those words themselves are contested. There's different definitions for what regret is, what detransition is. Those are important debates to have, important discussions to have. Um, We don't currently know how many um, people who... uh, you know, got medicalized as adolescents or young adults, um, regret their decision, how many have detransitioned. Um, and I think it's going to take us at least another decade until we have a better picture. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think we'll ever know with accuracy um, the full picture. Yeah. But I do think it's reasonable to assume that under the affirming protocol that is really, you know, at work in American clinics, because that protocol um, uh, openly rejects any gatekeeping, any questioning of a person's self-declared identity, um, I think uh, rates of regret and detransition are going to be much higher than what activists tell us they are, simply because there's absolutely no gatekeeping. So that was the second point. The third point that um, Paul made that, that, uh, that I think was good, although I think it could have been developed a little bit further, is, you know, she mentioned that rapid onset gender dysphoria is a contested, controversial concept, but, um, but that there is evidence for it. And she cited a number of sources, including a recent letter to the editor that I co-wrote with Lisa Littman and Michael Biggs, <clears throat> where we used a, uh, the U.S. Transgender Survey of 2015, which is a survey that is um, highly biased against any finding of evidence for ROGD, and that is frequently used by activists, researchers, and clinicians like Jack Turbin to, um, you know, to launch their crusade against ROGD. And we use that, that survey and we said, even if you look at this, at this survey, which is already biased against ROGD, there's actually quite a lot of evidence for um, uh, experiences consistent with ROGD in this survey. Um, so, you know, I, I'm glad that, that Pamela Paul um, highlighted the existing evidence that we have in favor of this hypothesis. And I would point out that it is still a hypothesis, right? We're still accumulating evidence. Um, um, but but yeah, part of the hypothesis is that ROGD exists. Um, and I think it's, it's be- that's becoming increasingly hard to, harder to deny. Mm-hmm. Um, I think number four, a really good point that came across in the article is that um, this whole narrative that is now being promoted by defenders of gender affirming care, especially Democrats, um, that you know, parents should be the ones to decide. Um, ignores mounting evidence that skeptical parents are frequently bullied by gender clinicians, by activists, by activist organizations, um, and probably by people in their own um, in their own social milieu um, to agree to these medical interventions on behalf of their kids. Um, the idea that you have kind of in this you know ideal clinical scenario in which a doctor sits down and gives kind of a comprehensive assessment mm-hmm. of what we know and what we don't know, the risks, the uncertainties, all that kind of stuff, you know, gives that information to the parents and then kind of takes a step back and lets the parents, you know, uh, consult among them. And then they come back with questions and it's kind of a collaborative decision-making process. Everything I have seen and heard from the world of gender medicine um, tells us that that is simply not true. Um, yeah. From the moment the kid sets foot in a gender clinic, there's mm-hmm. a tremendous amount of pressure on the parents to agree to uh, medical interventions. Um, even, you know, Jamie Reed in her, uh, you know, account of what went on in the um, now closed uh, gender clinic in St. Louis, you know, she said we were regularly bullying parents and, and sidelining the skeptical parent, which is usually the dad. Um, and putting an enormous amount of pressure on the parents to to agree to hormones. And I want to point out too, you you've been talking a little bit about this idea that it should be the parents' decision mm-hmm. is also a way that clinicians and professionals yeah. can dodge their culpability and That's responsibility right. if somebody feels harmed by these interventions. And this is a really important point because I I hear people on both sides of the political aisle use this phrase that like. Well, it's up to the, you know, well, they often say doctors and parents to kind of collaboratively decide, just as you describe. Right. But a lot of people are saying, well, this is up to the parents. And it's kind of ironic. I'm just thinking out loud. 
we often say, you know, we believe that parents know their kids best in the vast majority of cases, your parental instinct, blah, blah, blah. But there is this coercion. And sometimes there are parents who actually go into these clinics demanding the hormones and interventions. And I think Hannah Barnes also kind of describes that right. in her book. So it's very complicated and tricky because everybody's trying to kind of dodge responsibility and put it on somebody else. That's right. So, And of course, ultimately, you know, if you if you look at what gender clinicians, the influential ones, the ones who you know uh, advocate in, in in the public, the ones who testify in court, the ones who actually write the guidelines, if you look at what they they themselves say, um, they are actually putting all responsibility on the kid, right? They're yeah. saying like Jason Rafferty in that interview that he gave to Jennifer Block that that um, was published in the Boston Globe, you know, he said. The affirmative model is is a chi- is child-led. It's oriented around a child's sense of reality. Those were his words. And it's all about following the child where the child goes from start to finish, meaning even if the child detransitions and regret it, regrets it, detransition, helping them through detransition is itself part of gender-affirming care, right? So mm-hmm. it's all, all the responsibility is placed on the kid. That really shows that um, this model of care is being imported from the world of adult medicine where it makes more sense. I'm not going to say it makes perfect sense, but it makes more sense to just let adults dictate their own treatment decisions. Mm -hmm. Um, But they're putting it on kids as young as 10 or 11. That's a totally different story. So then the question is, well, what is the role of parents here? And, you know, I think there's an understandable tendency among critics of gender medicine to want to hold these parents accountable and maybe even demonize them um, and say, you know, how could you possibly do this to your kid? And look, I'm not denying that there are parents that um, that do this to their kids for reasons that are not, you know, legitimate, for example, meaning that they're not mm-hmm. really trying to help their kid. They're, mm-hmm. they're trying to help themselves in some way. Right. So the kind of the Munchausen syndrome by proxy. And, you know, in Hannah Barnes's book, um, the, 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 the Gids clinicians do describe that um, that they've they've encountered some of these cases. It doesn't seem to be a majority. Um, but they do exist. It's mostly women who do this, um, but it's pretty rare. And and one thing that I've uh, learned about from reading a little bit about um, Munchausen syndrome by proxy, it's extremely difficult to diagnose. Yeah. Um, and so taking all these things together, the fact that it's rare, the fact that it's very difficult to diagnose, the fact that, you know, the entire medical establishment as reflected by the medical associations um, the Democratic Party, kind of left of center legacy media, everybody is signaling to American parents, to parents all around the world, but but here to American parents, that these uh, interventions are medically necessary, um, well-evidenced and, and life-saving. My position has been and continues to be, we need to lay off the parents. We need to give them the benefit of the doubt. Um, there, go- there is going to be a point in time in which I think the, the evidence of institutional ideological capture is so overwhelming in which, you know, the New York Times has already reported enough articles about the dangers and the uncertainties behind gender affirming care for kids. There's going to come a point where, yes, we can and should start holding parents accountable, too, because parents have an obligation. They have a moral responsibility to uh, to make sure that their kids are not harmed. Um, but I don't think we're there yet. I don't think we've crossed that threshold yet. And I think also for strategic reasons, and this is what I've said publicly and what you referenced just a minute ago, Sasha, for strategic reasons, I think it's, it's, it's wrong f- of us to focus on the parents. And I, and I think that because gender clinicians and activists um, and, and you know politicians who give them cover um, they are the ones who are desperate to make this all about parents and what they decide, because that offloads responsibility from uh, gender clinicians and from the medical associations that empower them. Um, and so I don't want to see that responsibility being shifted in the public right. debate onto parents. I want to see people focusing attention on the gender clinicians on what they say, what evidence they cite and what the medical associations are doing. In many ways, we've kind of moved. It's it feels like it's moved from you know m- medical care to consumer driven care, yes. and it right. feels like you know back in the day, you know it was kind of eminence based medicine where it was basically the doctors were in a position of expertise, 
and their experience was was held kind of the most important voice in the room and then it's kind of it's moved into evidence-based medicine in general has moved into evidence-based medicine where it's the evidence the research will back up any any treatment and for in a whole lots of different you know areas um even psychotherapy has been massively influenced by what is now arguably almost patient-based um healthcare or even you could call it experiential um healthcare it's like you know what i mean the, the the voice of the patient has become like they might come to me saying for example i want some cbt I'm an integrative counsellor, so I, I, I could, you know, go any which way. But I'm thinking, well, actually, <laughs> it's my job to figure out what I think should be the treatment in this. You know what I mean? As opposed to they read it up online. Right. It's become this online Dr. Google thing that's happened. But that's the patient, right. but yeah, it's, it's the patient-based um, medicine is actually, it feels very empowering and it feels very, given lots of authority to the patient, but it's actually a ruse in many ways. It's 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 kind of allowing the patient to feel very powerful, but actually it's giving away all your rights almost. And when the patient is 10 years old, it's it's now, it's, it's moved from being patient-based to being child-led. So it's moved from being child-centered to being child-led. It's moved from patient-based right. to being child-led and suddenly it's actually become a, a debacle it's a fiasco at this stage and you then go back to well what was the seven years training for what 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 is the high salary for if the doctor in the room can't take responsibility for all the decisions that are being made well then it feels like well why isn't this just a pharmacy do you know what i mean so right. it's, it's kind of it's 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 ducking from responsibility in a slate of hand that pretends to give the patient so much responsibility. I know I haven't asked you a question, but it makes me very angry. <laughs> no, I, I, I agree with that. I mean, I think this distinction between patient-centered and patient-led is crucial. Um, and I think, you know, I, I'm not an expert in medicine broadly conceived. Um, uh, so, you know, there are other people who are more qualified to comment that uh, than, on that than I am. But I, I do think we, we're seeing more examples of this, um, <clears throat> this trend of letting, of, of you know, casting doctors as vendors yeah. and, 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 and their patients as consumers. Um, I think the opioid epidemic is actually a pretty good example of that, right? The adoption yeah. of pain as a fifth vital sign. Um, you know, there, there were some good reasons to do that, but at the same time, I think that the tendency there was was clearly trying to make um, the, ex the subjective experience of the patient um, factor in a lot more heavily into the uh, treatment decisions, mm -hmm. and um, and that that paved the way to um, the, the deadliest um, iatrogenic yeah. epidemic we've ever seen, um, ongoing. I should mention. But yeah. look, I mean, when it comes to, to gender medicine, I think it's really remarkable sometimes when you when you read statements by by activists, by um, gender clinicians, um, especially when it comes to adults. But you you are you're obviously seeing this kind of seep into pediatric care as well. Um, that just cuts out the doctor. Um, it almost makes the doctor an irrelevant um, figure in this whole mm -hmm. transaction. Right. It's. Mm -hmm. It's, it's all about the patient and what they want and what they believe is going to make them feel better. As if the doctor, um, the doctor's only obligation is to write the prescription if the patient wants it. Mm -hmm. And what I've been arguing, you know, for, for, for quite a while is no, doctors have a separate professional and ethical duty that is independent of the patient's desires and that in some cases can over... Um, override the patient's desires. Yeah. Um, and that is the duty to first do no harm. Mm -hmm. um, so doctors are not, you know, glorified shoe salesmen. They mm -hmm. are not, you know, just merely highly trained vendors of some consumer good. Um, they, they, they are professionals who practice a science, but also an art, and they are under separate moral and professional obligations and sometimes that, that obligation requires them to say no to patients. Yeah. And that introduces a certain element of paternalism into the picture. Yeah. And that, yeah. so that I think Stella is what you're, what you're talking about, that paternalism. But that paternalism is essential to medicine. Yeah. 
you know, we, so I think you, you always want to try to balance, right? You want to, you have to balance that paternalism against the autonomy of the patient for sure. And, and medicine can become too paternalistic. Um, but I think we've, the, the pendulum has swung in the opposite direction. I think gender affirming care is a very good example of that. We want to take a moment to thank our sponsors, Genspect and Therapy First. Genspect is an international organization committed to fostering a healthy approach to sex and gender. The team and members of Genspect strive to promote high-quality, evidence-based care for gender non-conforming individuals. Genspect is pleased to offer a non-medicalized approach to gender with their recently published Gender Framework, and they continue to hold conferences around the world. Visit genspect.org to learn more. Therapy First is a non-profit worldwide professional association of mental health providers who view psychotherapy as the appropriate first-line treatment for gender dysphoria. Therapy First supports psychotherapists working with gender dysphoric youth and young adults and offers public education on mental health and psychotherapy. Visit therapyfirst.org to learn more. Now back to the show. You know, sometimes I've compared the the shifts in gender affirming medicine to what we might expect from plastic surgery or a real kind of aesthetic consumer based medicine. But even since kind of making that point, I've spoken with various uh, surgeons and people within that aesthetic world. And even they say, if a patient comes in clearly with body dysmorphia disorder, I have to turn them away. I'm not allowed Mm. to do uh, this augmentation or that procedure on a person who's clearly suffering from some sort of a mental illness. And there are, even within the field of those aesthetically oriented medical practices, there are certain doctors who are known to do whatever the patient wants at any time, irrespective of whether or not this seems good for the patient, whereas other physicians are having to practice based on those ethical standards. So even in the most kind of consumer-driven versions of medicine, there are safeguards which the the doctor's responsible for keeping in place. So there's just like so much here. Right. That's a good point. Um, Yeah. I I, I don't have anything to add to that. I mean, I I just think it's, you know, again, we just have to constantly keep in mind that, that there's this permanent tension that we have to understand between the kind of the paternalistic impulse and the autonomy respecting impulse in medicine, and both are important, but the pendulum can swing too far in, in each direction. I think with gender medicine, it's swung way too far um, in the direction of autonomy. And, um, and it's not even, a, a, I think, a sound, reasonable definition of autonomy. Um, yeah. I think actually uh, Roberto D'Angelo had a really good letter to the editor about this question of patient autonomy um, recently, um, where he says, you know, Precisely, if you care so much about about the autonomy of patients, um, exploratory therapy is absolutely essential because only with exploratory therapy can you help patients understand themselves better. That's the role of a therapist, right? To just take what a patient says and their desires at face value, especially when they're so when they're so clearly suffering from um, various forms of distress. Um, is not respect for patient autonomy. That's just, you know, kind of unbridled consumerism. Yeah, well, in many ways, you know, therapy is is a good example of, you say paternal, I suppose it is paternal. We all kind of eke around the word paternal, but it it is quite paternal, but maybe authoritative or certainly it has expertise no. involved right. and the expertise could be respected. I, I, I do think that we need to, have a public awareness campaign around this so that the public are aware that there's a there's there's a decision making process happening and you know people i think might rely too much on evidence based and it's all about the research and somebody else might rely too much on the doctor says the doctor says whatever the doctor says and other people would be completely i want it and therefore and it's it's actually a triad it's the three it's it's a collaboration between the three is how we should arguably be coming to a decision with perhaps the most, in my view, the most responsibility as well as authority with the actual doctor who is trained and is kind of has the moral responsibility not, not to do any harm. Um, do you see limitations in the evidence based approach? Well, so. 
Maybe before we get into that, let's just finish the let's just finish the the Pamela Paul section because I do I do think we should get into that um, because that's a big question. Okay, (laughs) Um, if that's okay with you, that's fine with me. (laughs) Okay, Um, so just I think one one last point that that Pamela Paul I'm very very thankful that she got right, Um, and that is that you know there are problems. Um, in terms of how the Democratic Party and left of center journalism has covered this topic. Um, the way, you know, her quote um, from the piece is um, uh, the doctrinal rigidity of the progressive wing of the Democratic Party is disappointing, frustrating, and counterproductive. Uh, one, one senses, you know, <laughs> more than a hint of understatement here. Um, and, and it's true, you know, um, the Democrats for uh, for I think both ideological and um, political reasons are deeply invested in gender affirming care and deeply averse to um, recognizing any of its problems. Um, although we're starting to see change there. Um, we now have about two dozen Democrats in state legislatures who have either voted in favor of age restriction laws um, or who have voted against um, uh, sanctuary state laws for hormones. Um, and, you know, two dozen Democrats is not nothing. That's not nearly mm-hmm. enough, but it's not nothing. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I think this represents a growing trend. And I think by the end of 2024, um, we'll see a lot more Democrats who are, are willing to publicly express doubts. Um, but it's true that, you know, left of, left of center media, with some exceptions, uh, Reuters, for example, but with some exceptions, left of center media have for a long time ignored um, the plight of detransitioners, and maybe more importantly, what the experiences of detransitioners can tell us mm-hmm. about the realities of, of gender medicine, whether pediatric or adult. So here's what I think Pamela Paul gets wrong, and I think it's a, it's a pretty major point to get wrong. Oh. Um, I've tried to call attention to what, uh, what I've labeled the golden mean fallacy in left-of-center reporting on gender medicine. I mean, there have been um, a few journalists who have done a really good job, journalists on the left, liberal journalists, who have done a really good job kind of trying to <clears throat> report on the research, on, on the, the practices on the ground without, you know, kind of getting dragged into the culture war aspects of this issue. But oftentimes, even in those articles, you get a sense that there's this, you know, that, that they're trying to stake out a middle position between, on the one hand, you know, the Republicans or conservatives who want to just ban it all. Yeah. Um, pediatric, on pediatrics at least, ban it all. Um, and the Democrats and the progressive wing of the Democratic Party who want absolutely no restrictions and, in, if anything, to scale it up. Um, and so these kind of, you know, journalists who are, who are liberal will say something like, um, you know, these laws are excessive, they're cruel, they go too far. Um, but at the same time, the Democrats are not willing to acknowledge the, the risks and uncertainties. And, the, and, and that the, the, pref- the, the preferable approach would be, let's say, the approach being taken in Scandinavia right now, right? Where a small number of, of cases, mostly adhering to the criteria of the Dutch protocol, um, are allowed to go through with hormonal interventions. Um, and the golden mean fallacy is a fallacy because it, it wants the reader to, to think that the middle position is correct simply mm-hmm. because it's the middle position between mm-hmm. two extremes. Um, but that's not true, right? Um, yeah. Extremes can be, you know, an extreme position can be correct. Um, to give an obvious example, um, some people, most people <laughs> know that the world is round um, some people. How that dare the, you? You're alienating half of our audience right now. <laughs> Just kidding. I know. <laughs> Keep going. I know. Um, some people believe the Earth is flat. Um, those are two extremes, and in the middle, some people can say, "Well, the Earth is oval shaped." You know? <laughs> um, so that's you know that's a good example of of why the the, the middle ground. Is not necessarily true just because it's the middle between two extreme positions. Um, And I think here, too, if you look at the evidence, and I think more importantly, if you look at the conceptual framework for pediatric gender medicine, I think um, it's pretty clear that that one of those two extremes is, is, is far more correct than the other. Yeah. Um, Because the evidence, even for the supposedly conservative Dutch approach, is severely lacking. 
Yeah. Um, the, the Dutch study, which is widely cited as the best available evidence, even WPATH considers it to be the best available research that's been done to date. Um, the Dutch study is uh, extremely weak. Methodologically, it has a high risk of, of bias. Um, uh, it does not furnish high quality evidence in any way, shape or form. And so we really don't have good evidence, even for the most conservative approach to transitioning children. Um, and when you think about the kind of the philosophical framework, the conceptual framework for pediatric transition, um, it kind of doesn't make sense. Yeah. Right? Um, and so in light of all of that, I think the sensible position to take right now is that the path of least harm um, is to delay these decisions until mature adulthood. So I think that's that's one thing that Pamela uh, gets wrong. And I think that that leaving open the door for this claim that, well, certainly at least some kids would benefit from this, even if, you know, gender medicine has gone off the rails, even if there's no safeguards, even if the medical establishment is refusing to acknowledge any of the harms. Can't we all just agree that at least some kids would benefit from this mm -hmm. and that all we need really is, you know, therapists and endocrinologists who are extremely cautious and only transition the small number of kids who really need it? No, yeah. <laughs> even that proposition requires evidence um, and the evidence isn't there. And so that I, I wish that that Pamela Paul had had called more attention to that, because as long as we leave the door open, um, it's going to be extremely difficult to bring this um, what I regard as a medical scandal to an end. That's such a good point. And Stella, you and I were talking about something recently where like a person you encountered who's very, very skeptical of this rush to affirm said something like, but what about the real trans kids? Right. You know, yeah. so I think you're right that there is this weird. And, and sometimes I don't know how to assess this. Like, is it that it's better for us to inch our way towards a more reasonable position or do we have to be really, really hard line about the lack of evidence for any of it throughout the whole process? Because I, I'm also aware, having been doing this since 2016, because of the way there's this institutional capture and the mainstream narrative around this is so crazy. Mm -hmm. A lot of people who first encounter our cautious position think that we are conspiratorial and nuts. Yeah. Right. So I'm not always sure, like strategically speaking, because I'm not just a therapist. Like I work one on one with people, you know, about their personal and emotional issues. I don't know strategy on like a yeah. big global scale. So I don't know what's best for us to do. And it's an interesting question. And like this kind of makes me um, think about another topic we'd love to ask you about, which is the the kind of state to state bans, because I feel really, um, again, really confused and torn. Like you're saying, Lior, I can't think of any situation where I think it is appropriate to medically transition a child. I can't think of any scenario where I would think it's advisable. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, I know that bans in, the, in and of themselves, the way they operate to, can be so inflammatory as to create like this secret underground demand for something. So do you have thoughts about that? I mean, I, I imagine you've thought and written a lot about this. Yeah. I mean, look, let's set aside the issue of kind of the, the black market, the black okay. market of hormones, okay. um, because I think that that's that's an issue. It's a very important question. And there are, you know, online platforms like Plume that are now uh, trying to, to fill that gap. And there are organizations like Planned Parenthood that are also <clears throat> trying to fill that gap. Um, but let, let's let's focus on the bands themselves. You know, okay. look, I mean, you know, we, we live in a society that is extremely polarized politically, ideologically. Um, partisan polarization in particular is very intense. Um, there used to be overlap between the two parties, <clears throat> meaning there used to be Republicans who are more liberal than the most conservative Democrats and vice versa. That is almost non-existent nowadays. The parties are are sorted and polarized. Mm -hmm. So if you're conservative, you're in the Republicans. If you're liberal, you're in the Democrats. And that's that. Um, and we're also extremely tribal um, because of how information is, um, is consumed nowadays. 
you know, if you're liberal, you're going to read the New York Times and Slate and Mother Jones and, you know, uh, Washington Post and whatever. And if you're conservative, you're going to read National Review and Fox News and so on and so forth. And, you know, it's I'd say it's pretty rare to find, you know, the average American um, reading across the aisle just to make sure that, you know, that they're not sinking into confirmation bias. I think the vast majority of people consume information from from the sources they ideologically agree with. And so um, <clears throat> when, when, when you have laws that regulate an area of medicine as controversial as this one, people are going to want to kind of fit it in to their to, to the tribal dynamic, right? Mm-hmm. And so if you're a Democrat, if you're liberal, and you see that these laws are supported by Republicans, your natural instinct is to say, well, then I, I oppose the law um, and vice versa. Um, and that's unfortunate, but that's kind of the reality in which we live. Um, and so look, I'm, I, you know, is it possible that these laws are producing a, a you know, a, a reaction among um, liberal Americans, among Democrats to support gender affirming care where otherwise they wouldn't? Um, yeah, of course there is. Um, yeah. But I'm not sure there's a better alternative at the moment, um, you know, because when the medical establishment, this is argument I keep making, right? When the medical establishment is um, promoting a harmful practice and refuses to regulate itself or even to allow scientific open-minded debate Mm -hmm. on this issue, um, and we know that kids are getting harmed, um, what choice do regulators have other than to intervene? And it's not as if lawmakers don't regulate medicine. They do it all the time. American medicine, even though it's it's correctly recognized as, um, you know, kind of... uh, um, it, it, there, there's a strong element of free market um, uh, exchanges, of capitalism, profit motives. Um, these are one of the fundamental characteristics of American medicine in contrast to, let's say, European medicine. Um, but at the same time, American medicine is heavily regulated, especially after Obamacare, especially after 2010. Um, there's, uh, there's almost no aspect of medicine that, that doesn't have either the direct or indirect imprint of government um, laws or uh, rules, regulations, lawsuits, um, all those kinds of things. So to, to single this out and say, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, this is a unique example of legislators stepping in and regulating the practice of medicine is obscene. Uh, it's just not true. Um, yeah. And not to mention the fact that, you know, on the other side of the issue, activists have, um, have gotten the Democratic Party to regulate uh, to, to ban to to ban conversion therapy as they call yeah, it, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, which, in the case of gender identity, means you know, uh, or it has been interpreted to mean even exploratory therapy. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're also trying to put their thumb on the scale um, through a legislative action. Yeah, it's crazy. It's crazy the way the different concepts kind of come in and they stay. You know what I mean? Because like affirmative therapy. By calling themselves affirmative therapy, effectively negated the previous 150 years of conventional therapy, and it, it just with a phrase by by sticking affirmative onto it, it it, it wasn't therapy, and it, it should never have got past the gate. I suppose I bristle every time I hear exploratory therapy because I'm like, it's conventional therapy. It's 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 150 years. It's 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 a it's well established right. therapy, and we we feel I feel reduced. When it's 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 now it's turned into exploratory, and you're right. I know it's all therapy is exploratory, and I know all that, but it's just an, an offhand point. Yeah, and, and you know, yeah. I mean, just to riff off of that just a yeah. little bit, um, if you listen carefully to what uh, you know, mental health professionals who practice the affirmative approach say in terms of you know what exactly is affirmative therapy, because on the face of it, it doesn't seem like there's a role for therapists at all. Mm-hmm. Right. Specific. If all you're doing is agreeing with a patient's self-understanding and self-diagnosis, mm-hmm. where do you come in as a therapist? You know, the, the session is over after 10 minutes. Um, yeah. But if you listen to what they say about what they actually do, um, when they say things like mental health assessment, they don't mean exploratory therapy. What they mean is trying to understand how they can help the already affirmed, clearly self-evidently transgender child cope with being trans in a, in a different domains of life. So in family life, at school, yeah. um, if they have a job, then, then at work, um, wherever it is, that's, that's how they understand their role. So it's kind of like uh, self-help, kind of, you know, kind of a, a new age self-help, right? 
Um, instead of therapy being a mirror to help patients be, become more reflective and ask themselves difficult questions and look a little deeper um, into their feelings and experiences, um, the role of the therapist is reduced to kind of a, a, a popular self-help guru who just helps the, 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 <laughs> the, the, the kid, the adolescent who's already figured everything out, um, um, figure out how to uh, be his or her authentic self in different areas of life. That's not therapy. Yeah. yeah, you can call that whatever you want, but that's not therapy, and it's definitely not a mental health assessment. And the, yeah, and it you go uh, ahead. It it it, it kind of takes the form of like a coaching on how to assert this identity, which hasn't been explored, it hasn't been examined, it hasn't been assessed, it hasn't been even thought about. How do you assert this identity in every domain of life? So, like these therapists are often kind of helping coach the person on how to demand pronouns from people, how to come yeah. out to your parents, how to advocate at the school. So it really becomes kind of an action oriented kind of like coaching uh, advocacy, advocacy thing. Yeah. yeah. And um, one thing that I don't know that I would be curious to find out because you could see the potential for fueling narcissism here, right? <laughs> you could see the potential for a therapist kind of inflating the sense of entitlement of his um, teenage patients, teenagers are already prone to a sense of entitlement yeah. and thinking yeah. that the world has to bow down before them, right? Yeah. Um, it seems like it would be very easy for a, a therapist, an affirming therapist, to kind of inflame that sense that, you know, everybody owes me um, to understand my pronouns at every single moment, to follow the, the subtle fluctuations of my gender wherever they go. Um, I would be interested to know, as you know, it, are, do affirming therapists ever say to their clients, um, no, you can't expect, you know, uh, if, if let's say it's a male to female, you can't expect other girls to just accept that you'll that, that you're going to use the locker room. Well, that, you can't accept other girls at school to accept to, to accept that, you know, that that if you want to run on their track team, that 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 all of them should just be OK with it. Yeah. Um, I, I doubt it. I doubt that they're well, saying that's that. That's a key but I don't point. Know. That's how the, the phrase has set it up to be <clears throat> anti therapeutic. Because when you call it affirming therapy, as soon as you say, no, you can't go and play basketball or whatever, you know, what you've just said there, they'd say, you're not affirming. That's not right. affirmative. So exactly. immediately you're, you're, you're kind of checkmated. In, in WPATH, uh, there are standards of care. 2012, SOC 7, I suppose, Standards of Care 7. When they released that, they moved, they did an extraordinary shift and placed the therapist from the position of a therapist who could offer a therapeutic process to uh, a therapist who's a facilitator yeah. who is offering therapeutic support. Right. Which is. And so this is, and yeah. that's a really good point, Stella, because this is, this is consistent with kind of the role of, let's say, the prescribing physician, the endocrinologist as yeah. a dispenser of pills, yeah. right? Um, so you're no longer that kind of paternalistic element that we were talking about earlier, the gatekeeping function, the, you know, the, the ability to say no. Um, it, if that has gone away at the level of MDs, it's also going, seems to be going away at the level of mental health um, uh, therapists and licensed clinical social workers and so on and so forth. So, um, so yes, I think it's across the board we're seeing that in this, in this model of, of care. Well, I'm I'm even thinking about the way it's gone a step further, at least here in the U.S. I'm thinking about this APA position statement on the care of transgender and gender nonconforming people that I mm. read. And they, they talked about things like cis heteronormativity and internalized mm. transphobia and and mm -hmm. the, the bias of the therapist and the transphobia. And so they're really kind of twisting up the mind of the practitioner in an yeah. even more disturbing way they're not only saying you can't challenge your patient they're saying if you consider that maybe a male patient shouldn't expect these things that's your own transphobia talking this patient yeah. is a girl and she deserves to be on the girls team so it's like a really <laughs> twisted way of reframing and reorienting our perception of reality i mean i know that sounds so hyperbolic but it's right there in the position statement. It tells you if you have any kind of qualms about this, examine your own bias as a practitioner. I mean, it's almost, you know, it's almost as if the roles are being reversed here, that when a, a, a trans identified kid comes into a, a therapist's office, 
it's really the therapist who should be lying on the couch, <laughs> yes. right? It's really yes. the therapist who's being put, you know, put through an examination of their own beliefs and experiences so in order to bring about a psychological transformation in them. Yes. Um, because of course wow. the, the trans kid is, is on a pedestal, right? There, yeah. it's, this is, this is something special. That's yeah. So no, I think you're probably right. And, and I think that tells you that level of projection among psychologists tells you more about psychologists than about the patients. <laughs> you, you Eek, Stella. Oh, <laughs> I know. our field's in a bad shape. <laughs> I've gone through a very interesting process in the last few years of just really really criticizing psychotherapy as as an entire concept and you know looking at the evidence base and being unimpressed with it and um, looking at different kind of strands looking at the murky history i was actually at um freud's house in london yesterday i visited mm. it um and anna freud this is where anna freud lived and where where sigmund freud died and the actual room that he was in and you're just you're looking at the wall and you're reading all the crazy crackpot stuff that he came out with, and you're thinking, "Wow, my industry really." It began on, on shaky science, and it's it's continued on. It's a good hundred and fifty years later, and it's it's not doing great, is it? And you know, well, look, I mean, I don't think we... it was all these bad therapists, and now I think yeah. the therapists have just moved with the times, and they're told affirm. We're told right. it's a support. Forget about this process business. Now you're a supporter. Go and support. I mean, look, I, I wouldn't want to, and I also don't have the knowledge to do this, right? I wouldn't want to just kind of dismiss all of therapy. I mean, maybe <laughs> you know a lot more about it than I do, but um, I'm, I I just personally know a lot of people who have benefited from yeah. therapy. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, there are therapists, including <laughs> yourselves, who do wonderful work and really help people. So I'm sure that there has been a lot of um, improvement and, um, and, and, and benefits to, um, to our, um, to our society from, from the advancement of therapeutic techniques. But, but yes, I mean, you can see that the potential for things going awry in this particular field, yeah. um, partly because it's, it's not an exact science, um, and, and it's just prone to abuse. Heavily, um, partly he because heavily yeah. reliant on the therapist, heavily reliant on the clinician. Right. Right. And partly because it's also just so susceptible to cultural trends. Um, you know, I just got done listening to a six, a six episode podcast on the recovered memory craze of oh, the 1990s. Yeah. We're yeah. all about and, it, Lior. Um, <laughs> We're talking about reading, it all the time. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's also there's a, a really good book that I'm that I'm almost done with right now um, uh, called Making Monsters that really mm -hmm. gets deep yeah, into yeah. the into the weeds of what happened there and kind of the, the, the origins of the pseudoscientific theories and how they got popularized. And I mean, the, the, the parallels to what we're seeing with gender affirming care are just remarkable. Um, there it, are past there, there are entire pages of that book where you could just you yeah. know, cross out recovered memory and write gender affirming care. And the meaning yeah. would be exactly correct. Totally. Um, As a matter of fact, I am probably by the time this episode comes out, it will be out, but I'm producing two videos about the memory hole podcast mm. and the parallels with gender affirming oh, care and I the trans kids concept. And it is incredible. I mean, there, there are so many things that even though I had studied this, that keep kind of, I keep discovering more and more parallels. And, you know, to go back to what you, we were talking about regarding therapy, um, one of the interesting episodes of the Memory Hole podcast, they talked to a couple of researchers and scientists and neuroscientists who study how memory works. And they were talking about how very precarious and subjective it is. And even the way a therapist might ask a patient a question can elicit a cascade of things to where right. they're trying to remember something that didn't actually happen. And it's it may not be intentional on the therapist's part, but we're just very vulnerable to suggestibility. All of us are. And when you look at the kind of vulnerability of a child, you know, it's even more apparent that we have a huge responsibility that should be taken seriously and we should be very sober about how we interact with kids who are distressed having mental health issues right. questioning their identity so it it's so important for people to kind of understand this isn't the first time that therapy has the potential to go off the rails that's right. And I, you know, at, at the, at the risk of preempting some of the stuff that, that you might say in your podcast. No, please do. Um, I mean, there are a number of really interesting parallels here. 
if I could just mention a couple that really stuck out to me. One is um, that at the heart of the recovered memory memory theory is an unfalsifiable theory about how the memory works. Yeah, it's yeah. unfalsifiable, right? Yeah. Because you only know about the memory once it's retrieved. So how could you possibly test whether it exists in in, in a state of repre repression? Um, so it's unfalsifiable, and in the same way. The idea that all humans have an innate gender identity that's, you know, kind of intuitively known and blah, blah, blah. That's also unfalsifiable. Yeah. Um, so so that's number one. Um, number two, I think the, the mechanism um, of, uh, of, uh, of, of therapy here, I think, is really or of diagnosis is really interesting here. Right. Because you have a scenario or, or, or um, you have a condition in which certain symptoms are known to be caused by a certain event in the case of, let's say, sexual trauma, right? Yeah. If you were sexually traumatized as a child, that can give rise to certain symptoms of, you know, maladjustment, anxiety, depression, whatever, later on. But the move in the recovered memory movement was to go from Backwards. symptoms to cause. Yeah. yeah. And that's where all of the shenanigans came in, right? right. So if you have anxiety and depression, then we can work backwards and find, you know, and, and use that as evidence for a repressed memory that can be retrieved through therapeutic sessions where patients were, um, were, were basically subject to the problem of suggestibility. Yeah. Uh, and in the same way, you know, if you know that, um, that this experience of distress arising from being in a particular sexed body, let's call it gender dysphoria, if you know that that gives, that that causes anxiety and depression, well, then all of a sudden you get these teenagers with anxiety, depression, and you work your way back and you say, oh, well, then maybe they have gender dysphoria. Yeah. Right? And then the third thing that I found really interesting as a parallel there, there was a moment in the podcast, um, and this also came up, and there's actually a few books that I've read on recovered memory that are that are really good. Um, yeah. But I think this Making Monsters is probably the best. But um, but there, there was a few passages in some of those books and one moment in the podcast where you had examples of therapists saying explicitly, my job is not to discover the truth yeah. of what happened to a patient. My job is to help them feel better. Uh, it, it's therapeutic, right? My job is to help them uh, uh, cope better with their life circumstances. She actually right said, now. my job is to create a safe space for her to recover right. her memories. Or at least is, to recover, to, to, yeah. to, to, um, to overcome the sources of distress and, and so on and so forth. Right. So, so it's like the, the, whether something actually happened becomes unimportant. Yeah. Right. And in the yeah. same way, I think you can see in the, in the gender affirming field, um, there's almost a kind of a disregard for, I mean, some, some people actually believe in this theory of innate gender identity. I'm sure a lot of mm -hmm, people actually mm -hmm. believe in it, but to some extent, I think it kind of doesn't matter. Yeah. Right. Because the, the premise seems to be, if it makes you feel better, to be affirmed, treated as a boy or as a girl, then you are a boy or a girl, right? Yeah. So it, it's the, the therapeutic uh, focus is, is, is primary and whether something is actually true or not is secondary. Um, I, I really would recommend that uh, listeners do go and take a break from our podcast, check out the Memory Hole podcast. It's only six, six episodes and then you can come back to us. It's phenomenal because she begins and it shows about the culture of the time that there was so much talk about incest and so much talk about child yeah. sexual abuse. I remember it. They were talking kind yeah. of like late 80s, 90s. Everybody was talking about it. It was on all the TV shows. It was in all the soaps. It was just in the air, just like gender is today. It's just in right. the cultural water as such and um this was a she was in her 20s or something like that and she forgot what she was going to say this is how the session or the first episode starts she forgot what she was going to say and her friends who were totally into whole recovered memory said oh forgetting what you're going to say is a sign of uh child sexual abuse that you've right. forgotten and she was like Oh, I don't think so. I think I just forgot. I stumbled and I forgot what I was going to say. And they were like, oh, no. And then they did this kind of, it's very voodoo. They started doing free writing in their opposite hand. And I just remember, <laughs> and we're laughing yeah. at it because it's 30 years later. Yeah. But I, I, I remember the vibe of it. You'd say something and somebody would say, oh, maybe it's maybe it's a hidden memory. Mm -hmm. It was it was mm -hmm. peppered in your speech back then. Right. And, um, the, you know, it's, it's, it's a credit to Paul McHugh, who also exposed the work of John Money in the 70s. He's a doctor. He was working in John Hopkins. And ultimately, 
you know, when John Money was gone wild in John Hopkins, uh, Johns Hopkins, isn't it called, in, in the mm-hmm. 70s, and he was transitioning people and doing very unethical things. Dr. Paul McHugh got it closed down in 1979, got that gender identity clinic closed down. But he started the False Memory Syndrome Foundation mm. in the 90s. So this guy is a hero. And mm. four, four years after he started the concept, so they were coming in with the Recovered Memory Syndrome. He came in with False Memory Syndrome. Like, this is a false memory. And four years after he started his, his or he and others, I shouldn't just say him, of course, um, he got it into the dictionary. So it just shows that the culture of the times, and I feel we're in the middle of this period of transition. Yeah. You know what I mean? That yeah. it, it, where it was, oh, it might be your identity, it might be your identity. And now people are saying, oh, hang on a second, there's more to this. Yeah. So, well, okay. So, yeah. so that's actually interesting, right? Because I think there are. Um, Lior, can can we yeah. can we maybe take this conversation into our membership? Oh yeah, yeah, let's do that. Because sure. I, I really want to lair, say. <laughs> <laughs> For now, yeah. we want to say to our general audience, we're <laughs> so grateful to have had you on. We're going to link to your letter to the editor, to your writing at Manhattan Institute, and of course to your Twitter account. Is there anywhere else we can send people to read more of your work? All of my written work appears on my MI profile, my okay. Manhattan Institute profile. Yeah. Okay, that's great. And well, you're thank on you fire, for joining on, us again. Thanks very much, Leo. You're on fire on Twitter these days. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah you for are sure. Knocking it out of the park. Thanks, Leo. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thanks for joining us this week on Gender, A Wider Lens. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And be sure to visit us on Substack by going to widerlenspod.com. There you can join our listener community, access bonus content and resources, plus learn about additional ways to support the show. Our discussions are for educational purposes and are not intended as a substitute for mental health services. 